This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Brian Sullivan, a researcher and instructor at La Jolla Institute for Immunology. We'll be discussing endotheliopathy and platelet dysfunction in Lassa fever. Welcome, Dr. Sullivan. Hi, Sarah. It's great to be here. Endotheliopathy and platelet dysfunction are outcomes of Lassa fever. Uh, start with telling us what Lassa fever is. Lassa fever is a disease that's caused by the arenavirus, Lassa virus. How many people get it annually? Well, it's been estimated that 300 to 500,000 people get it annually. And it's interesting because it, it really has been an understudied disease. So we, we don't really have a good grasp of how many people actually have it. But uh, it covers an area of West Africa where about 300 million people live. Um, and we know that the seropositivity in many places is quite high. So we think it's pretty widespread. Explain to us what endotheliopathy and platelet dysfunction is. Sure, I'd love to. So the endothelium is um, the barrier that lines our blood vessels and has very important functions. And when these functions are disrupted, you get a disease of the endothelium. And that's what we call endotheliopathy. And so during these viral infections, uh, such as lots of fever, you disturb that endothelial barrier, and it becomes porous for various reasons. Um, platelets are also very important in maintaining this barrier function. As you know, uh, I think the most famous uh, part about platelet function is, is the ability of your blood to clot, that everybody knows that they get a scratch, that uh, when they start bleeding, their blood clots and forms a barrier to the outside. Well, platelets have that function as well as many other functions to maintain uh, that blood vessel system. And they also have very important functions in immunology that I think we're just really beginning to understand. What are the symptoms of loss of fever, and is it fatal? So the symptoms can vary quite a bit, and I think that's one of the uh, problems with loss of fever in West Africa is that the disease mimics many of the diseases that are endemic in the area. So many people would think of these symptoms as flu-like symptoms, malaise, fever. Um, but once the disease depresses, you can have very specific symptoms like bleeding from the mucosal areas, edema, which is swelling, uh, which is when you have a uh, liquid going into the various tissues. So you would have a swelling of the neck area. Um, and sometimes in the very uh, severe cases, you'd have um, neurological symptoms like confusion and disorientation. And it certainly is fatal. Uh, many people are likely infected with loss of virus, and only a small subset of those people show these very severe symptoms. But among those people, it's very fatal. Anywhere between 30 and 70% of people that show these more severe symptoms and go to the hospitals in West Africa, end up dying from the, from the disease. That's actually a huge number. Uh, Dr. Sullivan, how is it transmitted? Well, most times the disease is transmitted from a rodent to human. So rodents will invade a person's house, uh, and the rodents would you know, make a mess, a urinate or, or, or defecate on, on various items in your house, and that would end up uh, causing the person to inhale 
um, some of this, what we call excreta. And so it can also be passed from human to human, but most of the time that happens uh, within a household that somebody is very ill or within a hospital setting, what we call nosocomial infections. But most of the time it's, it's from a rodent to human transmission, which actually makes it very hard to eliminate because those rodent hosts uh, are pretty widespread throughout West Africa. And widespread in people's houses. Right, yes. Is there a treatment or a vaccination? So there's no treatment or vaccination uh, to loss of fever. Currently, there's different vaccines being tried out uh, and developed uh, in the coordination with the Center for Innovation Preparedness, uh, but there's no currently licensed vaccines uh, available. As for treatments, there's no accepted or licensed treatments available either, although some people uh, have used ribavirin, which is an antiviral, but it's an off-label use, and really its efficacy hasn't been thoroughly tested. We, we think that at the time that most people arrive at the hospital sick with lots of fever, that ribavirin really isn't effective because it has to be given pretty early on in the infection for, for it to be effective. Which is true of all antivirals. They usually need to be within at least 78 hours, correct? Right. Yes, that's true. Why is Lassa fever classed by CDC as a bioterrorism agent, and, and what does that actually mean? Well, uh, the CDC classifies bioterror agents under certain criteria. Uh, so um, certainly diseases that can be uh, easily disseminated or transmitted from person to person, which certainly Lassa is under certain conditions. Uh, when diseases result in high mortality rates, you know, that would have a potential for a public impact. Um, certainly, diseases like Ebola um, would certainly fit into that, into that realm, but Lassa is a very similar virus, although it doesn't spread from person to person as easily. Uh, and, and diseases that could cause public panic or some, some kind of social disruption and re- would require a special action uh, for public health. It's also important to note that, as we had mentioned, there's no treatment or vaccine for this disease as well, which is really makes it um, a strong contender for a, for a bioterrorism agent and to really cause panic among population if it was uh, to disseminate more widely. So it, it's not like it can be gathered like anthrax and put in people's mailboxes. Right. It certainly can't be disseminated like that. I mean, the virus itself is not, um, it's not a very robust virus physically. So, you know, it will only last on surfaces for, for several hours, most likely. Um, but certainly um, the disease can be spread from person to person that causes pretty substantial symptoms that, um, you know, like, so very similar to, to Ebola, which does certainly cause a lot of panic in people, as it, as it should, because of its high mortality rate. Right, yes. Um, what time period did your study cover? Well, we used samples from the biorepository uh, at the Kenema Government Hospital in Sierra Leone, and that biorepository holds samples from uh, since the end of the Civil War there, 2003. But we limited our samples to more recent samples um, from around 2016 to 2018, just to get uh, make sure that our samples were um, the best samples available and the freshest we could use. What geographic locations is it endemic in? Besides, I mean, you said West Africa, but that's a pretty large area. 
Sure. So uh, when I when I say West Africa, I mean the the entire area covering from Nigeria all the way west to Sierra Leone and Guinea. The most widely studied uh, regions for lots of fever are Nigeria and Sierra Leone and Liberia. However, it's been uh, more widely studied now the area between Sierra Leone and uh, and Nigeria. Those gaps of countries also have uh, lots of fever endemic in those populations. As I said before, there's about 300 million people in that in that general area. Lots of fever uh, is really mostly endemic in the rural parts of West Africa. So we're talking about uh, smaller towns and villages, not necessarily in cities, which actually makes it much harder to study because many of these places do not have the healthcare infrastructure that you need to study loss of fever. Is this the same area where we see Ebola? So this is the same region uh, where the West African Ebola outbreak took place. Many of the other Ebola outbreaks, which takes place in Central Africa and Uganda, um, are in different regions where Lhasa isn't endemic. But there are also other similar viruses endemic in that area that I think are understudied as well. That must be very challenging to separate out initially which um, bloodletting fever you have. Right. Well, the, 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 the problem is those symptoms um, are so common to malaria, which is very common in the same areas, and typhoid fever, which is also common, that everything else gets tested before lots of fever does. And there's not a very good recognition of uh, the impact of, of lots of fever in West Africa because there just isn't enough testing done. Help us to understand what this means for public health. Sure. So our colleagues have shown that um, through sequencing of the, of the virus uh, in different parts of West Africa, that actually in the last few hundred years, Lots of fever has been on the move. It seems to have originated uh, in Nigeria thousands of years ago, but actually only more recently moved west uh, towards Sierra Leone and Liberia and Guinea in about the last several hundred years. So we can imagine uh, impacts of, of people movement, impacts of uh, further uh, spread of human population, impacts of climate change might lead to uh, this rodent host spreading further in different areas of the world. So certainly understanding lots of fever uh, and its rodent host would be important if lots of fever, especially if lots of fever is spreading throughout other places in Africa or ended up uh, spreading to other areas around the world as well. Is there an economic impact of this disease? I would imagine there is. So certainly I think there is. The economic impact is unclear um, because the just hasn't, lots of fever just hasn't been studied uh, very thoroughly. Uh, much more epidemiology has to be done with this virus. And some is really starting to be done with recent surveys in, in Nigeria and Sierra Leone. The Nigerian CDC has really done an excellent job in, in promoting and making uh, people aware of loss of fever. And now uh, many more surveys, or zero surveys, uh, are being done in different areas of Nigeria to understand really how widespread loss of fever is. 
Certainly, this is also happening in Sierra Leone, and we have learned that some towns have much higher uh, seropositive rates than other towns. So, uh, so far, the economic impact is unclear, but, you know, this disease also affects people of all ages. Uh, so, once somebody gets lots of fever, uh, they could be uh, young, they could be middle-aged, they could be older, and certainly that would affect their ability to, to produce economically with both the high fatality rates, but also that people that even survive with loss of fever also have uh, a, a post-viral syndrome um, that causes them to have much more uh, health difficulties in their life following, following survival. So this is very similar to what people have been seeing in, in coronavirus the COVID survivors who who they call long haulers who have problems even much later after they've cleared the virus um, and have been released from the hospital. So there's 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 a definitely an economic impact I think from from those individuals as well. Yes, the long term economic impact of people, as you say, long haulers um, from COVID is is truly worrisome. Why did you do this study? Well, we had been interested in lots of fever for a while, and, and when a very talented medical fellow, uh, infectious disease medical fellow in our lab, Lucy Horton, came, came to study with us, she was interested in why people haven't really studied, this is termed as a viral hemorrhagic fever, but people haven't really studied what's causing this hemorrhage or, or endothelial disruption. And so she had noticed that really maybe the term hemorrhagic fever isn't very accurate because many times you don't see people having overt hemorrhages. What you see are signs of endothelial dysfunction. So people will have coughs, and that's because fluid is filling up in their lungs. Um, People will have swollen areas, like I had mentioned before, edema, Uh, but and some bleeding maybe from mucosal surfaces, but not a very... Uh, overt bleeding in many, many cases. So she was wanted to understand uh, what are the um, changes that occur uh, in people that survive loss of fever and people that succumb to loss of fever. And maybe by studying those two populations, we can understand uh, a little bit more of the mechanisms of, of what is occurring uh, in these most severe cases where you see such high uh, impact on on people's endotheliums. How did you go about doing this study? I mean, what kind of data did you use? Sure. So we used, like I mentioned, we used plasma samples from uh, patients that were stored in the biorepository that had been uh, admitted to the loss of fever ward in Sierra Leone. And it was important that we had used time of admission samples because then we can distinguish, uh, we, we could ask questions of whether we could distinguish between fatal non-fatal cases, and we can ask what is going on in severe cases, and how would we begin to think about treating those individuals that have the most severe cases so we can start lowering the case fatality rate. And so what we did was looked at various proteins that were present in the plasma of of people that had been admitted to the ward, uh, proteins that were important in uh, coagulation, proteins that are important uh, in endothelial barrier disruption and proteins that were important in figuring out what's occurring with, with platelets that, of course, 
uh, are essential for uh, maintaining the endothelial barrier. You want to take a moment to tell us briefly about your study? Sure. So we, we analyzed plasma samples, like I said, to identify differences in these circulating proteins um, that are different in loss of fever, specifically different in people that die and people that survive from loss of fever. We compared these to healthy controls and people with, with other similar diseases that weren't loss of fever so we can understand what are the specific differences that occur in loss of fever and then what are the specific differences in people that survive and people that die from loss of fever. Again, these proteins that we looked at are involved in coagulation, which is the ability um, of blood clots to come together and block any disruption uh, in the endothelium. Uh, proteins are important in fibrinolysis, which is the uh, resolving of those clots, so the breaking up of those clots after they've done their job, and in endothelial cell activation. Again, that endothelium is both a barrier on your blood vessels, but it also has many other functions, uh, letting different immune cells into tissues, signaling to immune cells that there's been an infection or disruption in the barrier. So these endothelial cells are very important. Uh, and we thought that we'd uh, see differences in people with very severe cases as compared to people with milder cases of loss of fever. And then we are certainly interested in looking at platelet function we knew that uh, platelet numbers go down in people that have loss of fever, but they don't go down so dramatically that you're still not able to, let's say, clot your blood if, if, uh, if you get a cut. So we call this overt hemorrhaging. So we didn't see platelet numbers so low that that, uh, that wouldn't happen. So we thought that maybe there was a deficiency in the platelets themselves. So this is all tied together in a very complex system, the coagulation, the fibrinolysis, the endothelial cell activation, and the platelet function. And really, I think we're just scratching the surface of what's going on. Uh, but it's important to really start answering these important questions so when we can further develop hypotheses and mouse models and non-human primate models um, and in humans to really understand what's going on on the molecular level. Were there any other findings you want to mention? Sure. Uh, we found that uh, a specific pathway called the protein C pathway um, wasn't able to function to protect the endothelial integrity. This is a very interesting pathway that has several different functions. Um, it has an anticoagulation function, and it has uh, a cytoprotective function. Uh, and these functions are mediated depending on the state of uh, the receptors on endothelial cells. So we observed that uh, certain receptors on endothelial cells have been cleaved off, and these receptors are important in the cytoprotective pathway, that is, protecting these endothelial cells uh, that maintain the vascular barrier. There was a study done a few years ago where people had given uh, an activated protein C to non-human primates that had Ebola infections and showed an increase in survival. We think that might not be able to happen here, uh, because those receptors that are so important in that signaling pathway that protects the endothelium are likely no longer on these endothelial cells in the most severe cases. So uh, that gives us one window of understanding what might be lacking in these, in these individuals uh, that have very severe uh, cases of loss of fever. Is there a way to stop cases from increasing, like um, public outreach or public education programs? 
Is there anything that can be done? Sure. And I think education is, is key here. And I want to give a special recognition to the outreach team at Sierra Leone that have been doing this for many, many years um, in the last few uh, they've been going to different towns and villages and talking to people about loss of fever and what can be done to avoid um, rodents um, in their houses, uh, to, to clean up areas uh, or protect areas that might have food that might attract rodents. Um, and, and this is really essential um, to both educate people that loss of fever is out there so that if they get sick, they can seek the proper treatment. Uh, and also to mitigate um, them getting infected um, in the first place. Again, I think much more epidemiology has to be done on lots of people to really understand how most people are getting infected. It seems that some studies have shown that because of the thatched roofs in many people's houses, that the rodents can run across the ceiling uh, in the roof and perhaps drop, uh, drop their droppings down into the living areas. And maybe that's how people are getting infected. But we really don't understand how most people are getting infected other than they're getting infected from these rodents. Certain studies have shown that uh, the level of infection of loss of fever in any particular town is directly correlated with the number of rodents that have loss of fever. So there's a very direct correlation with the presence of these rodents and the rodents that have lots of fever and the, uh, and the infections that people are getting. So if we can figure out a way to stop these rodents from, from encroaching into people's homes, uh, I think that would be uh, the most effective to try to avoid um, getting lots of fever. Were there any challenges to this research? I imagine there were. <laughs> Certainly, uh, when you're working um, in environments uh, that don't have as many resources in developed countries, there's um, always challenges, but rather than uh, focus on the on the challenges, I just want to say what a pleasure it was to work with our African partners and the expertise that they had in both treating loss of fever and uh, identifying patients with loss of fever and doing community outreach and education. Uh, certainly, the people that we worked with in Sierra Leone, experts in identifying the various rodents that could carry loss of fever, and they have actually shared this knowledge with other individuals in Nigeria and trained people across West Africa. So while there are certainly challenges, even uh, getting to these areas are sometimes very difficult uh, in the rainy season and in the conditions of the infrastructure, um, challenges in, in uh, uh, regular access to electricity is always challenging. Uh, but we, we were able to overcome these challenges mainly because of the expertise um, of, our, of our African collaborators. Are there any actions or further studies that you'd like to see? I know you said that it needs lots more epidemiology and s studies along that line. Can you elaborate a little bit? Sure. So um, certainly uh, there's, there's a lot to learn uh, when it comes to loss of fever. In terms of... Uh, furthering our studies, we'd certainly um, like to see studies in non-human primates exploring some of the avenues that we've identified as potential uh, mediators of this endothelial barrier dysfunction. And again, uh, as you mentioned, uh, certainly many more epidemiological studies need to be done. The, the highest risk is among pregnant women uh, in, their, in their unborn babies 
where nearly uh, all uh, of pregnant women that are infected lose their lose their pregnancy, uh, and it's very high maternal mortality rates if uh, pregnant women are infected in their last trimester. So the impact of loss of fever, I think, in this population has specifically been understudied. These are areas where loss of fever is endemic, where you have the highest maternal mortality rates. And certainly, I think part of the reason might be uh, the poor healthcare infrastructure, but the impact of loss of fever in that case hasn't really been studied. And I think if a population such as that were identified, it would actually be a lot uh, better for, uh, it would be a, a good target population for, for vaccination. Uh, and certainly that has a very big healthcare impact. Also, pregnant women uh, that have lots of fever, when they give birth, um, they pose a specific hazard to healthcare workers as well. Because of all the fluids that are generated during pregnancy, uh, it could be easily passed to, to healthcare workers. And there's certainly been many cases uh, that has occurred in, in Kenema of, pregnant, of infected pregnant women um, having stillbirths in, in the maternal wards there and infecting uh, some of the healthcare workers. Do you have any additional recommendations to help people not get loss of fever other than um, looking into ways to keep rodents out of houses? Right. Certainly, I think keeping rodents out of houses is the most important part. But washing your hands, cleaning areas. Uh, other people in South America where they have similar arena virus infections uh, have used people that are immune because they had been previously infected by these arena viruses um, to collect rodents on the outskirts of town to keep the numbers of rodents in the town uh, minimally minimally present. So certainly, I think programs like that could help, uh, rodent trapping programs, um, surveillance programs from the various public health units that are present in these areas uh, to understand what is the impact or the potential impact of infection on each of these uh, smaller uh, towns and villages. So if you have it, um, you're immune, then you don't get it again, like West Nile or something where you can just keep getting it. Right. So if, you're, if you've had it before, it doesn't mean you can't be infected again, but you won't have the severe disease again. Uh, the immunity that you get from Lhasa is not what you call a sterilizing immunity. So you can get infected again, and the virus will replicate a little bit uh, in your body, but you won't get the severe disease that you did get the first time. I see. Okay. So tell us about your work and what you enjoy most about it. Well, certainly, like all scientific work, I think uh, the thrill of discovery, of learning something new that nobody else has learned, is really, uh, I think, the biggest part of it. But also, with the studies, uh, this and various other studies we've done in West Africa, just working with uh, the people in these regions, learning from the experts there that have been working with uh, loss of virus for um, just dozens of years, uh, has really been uh, very rewarding. And hopefully, uh, we're going to start seeing an impact of this work uh, on both patient treatment and perhaps um, with, with vaccines hopefully being developed, um, that lots of fever won't have such a great impact in the future uh, than it does today. 
you live in a fabulously beautiful part of the country, um, southern Southern California, La Jolla, San Diego. Um, what do you do? What do you enjoy doing in your personal time there? Well, uh, you know, in the pandemic, we've spent a lot of times in our houses, and I think uh, that we're lucky down here as we have a lot of uh, natural beauty. So uh, my family and I have certainly gone uh, hiking several times, which is you know good good social distance activity uh, outdoors um, to enjoy the beauty of both the mountains and and, and the beach uh, ocean areas here. So we do we definitely enjoy a lot of outdoor uh, hiking and camping activities. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Sullivan. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the November 2020 article, Endotheliopathy and Platelet Dysfunction as Hallmarks of Fatal Loss of Fever, online at cdc.gov eid. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.